to a world on fire and all-star squadron podcast i'm your host billy d and alongside me is my co-host herman Lowe. how are you buddy hi billy man yeah i'm doing fine um it's uh, already well at, at the time of recording it's a monday morning for me so that sounds a bit strange saying i'm doing fine but you know my mondays are pretty good laid back i don't have to go into the office <laughs> can just work from <laughs> home and uh but not that this is work though this is you know purely uh, fun and, and enjoyment, you know, for you and me podcasting. Mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm referring, of course, to real work, which I'm not going to be doing much of today. <laughs> <laughs> so how's it been going with you, man? Uh, pretty good. I mean, allergy season is in full swing over here uh, in uh, eastern United States. So that's not a whole lot of fun. The winds were blowing at like Mach 2, I think, uh, the other day, and they have all the pollen flying around into my eyeballs and nostrils. So... <laughs> It's not been awesome. It's been, although my wife has gotten it much worse than me. So God bless her. She's been a mess. <laughs> Holy hell, dude. I'm sorry oh, yeah. to hear about that. Yeah, that's some, <laughs> that's something that hasn't plagued me for a while, but it could, you know, easily <laughs> pick up again mm-hmm. <laughs> once I, yeah. you know, step on some foreign soil again <laughs> here in Taiwan. That's not mm-hmm. much of a concern, but, but um, listen, before we start, you know, with the issues that we're planning to discuss, which in this case is All-Star Squadron 12 and 13 listeners. Mm-hmm. If you've been following along with us, as we sure you, as we're sure you have been, uh, I want to briefly mention that I over the weekend, Billy, I saw uh, the newest uh, DC animated movie, the Justice Society film called Yeah, it's just called Justice Society World War Two. Nice. I was very excited for it. I don't know. Have you seen the trailer at all? Um, you know, on, on YouTube or anywhere? Uh, do you know much about this film? Were you were planning on watching it? I have seen the trailer for it, and I thought it looked great. I mean, it's obviously only like a couple of minutes, but it, it looked really good to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not going to spoil anything as to the plot and, and so forth, you know, but I'm going to say I was a little bit disappointed. In fact, you know, it's my least favorite DC animated film, which is probably since there's mm. such a whole bunch of them out there, you know, that, that's, that, that makes it a terrible film. But mm-hmm. um, it, it's not it's not that bad though you know i've i've never seen a dc animated film that's that let's say lower than a 5 out of 10 so this one i would give a 5 out of 10 but um i i just think there was a lot of missed opportunities my biggest problem though was with the dialogue and with the the you know the dialogue scripted to you know between the characters things didn't work out there was a lot of weird and awkward pauses um at least in my opinion you know um hmm. between and and they tried to um throw in some humor but the humor fell flat for me in almost all of the cases where it was slated to appear and uh you know um central story interesting enough uh lots of great action sequences you know that part was great 
um, those parts, I should say. But, um, you know, other than that, I found it to be a little bit clunky. And some of the, the voice acting was good, but some of the voices sounded really strange to me, especially Hawkman's voice. He sounded like very... I don't know how to put it, like a bit of a dandy. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with dandies. It's just Hawkman, you would you'd figure he would be gruff, he would be tough, but he sounded yeah. too refined for my tastes. I don't know. I mean, obviously he's a he's a, a like a billionaire playboy, so that that could be in line with his character, his alter ego, but it just didn't work for me. And and like I said, oh, and the, the relationship between Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor what was so forced. And and it was supposed to be, you know, like it it it, it ended up being mawkish, uh, and mm. too overly sentimental. I don't know. That's just me, and that sort of detracted from the overall enjoyment of the film. You know what I mean, Billy? Yeah. Um, but you you see a lot of uh, the JSA beating up Nazis, so that part was great. <laughs> a lot of fun, and uh, two flashes. How often do you see the Golden Age Flash? And, uh, you know, Barry Allen, uh, the Flash from Earth One, let's call him the Silver Age Flash, <laughs> or the, yeah, yeah. The, the modern Flash. How, how often do you see them together as an animated, you know, uh, feature? Not a lot, right? So um, no. we see that a lot on the pages of the comics, but I was, it was very pleasant to see them. Um, and, you know, so there were good parts. That's why I gave it a 5 out of 10. I wouldn't go lower than that. Like, <laughs> let, let me just set, set, you know, show me, show you and the listeners or, or let you know about how I sometimes rate stuff. Like Batman versus Superman. This might make some listeners upset, but I gave it like a, a 1 out of 5. Uh -oh. Out of 10. <laughs> 1 out of 10. <laughs> and, you oh know, just Justice League, I, I gave it 3 out of 10. Snyder, the Snyder cut, which was a four-hour slog, I gave a little bit higher. I gave it a four out of ten. Still, I felt I was wasting my time. Sorry for the fans out there who who did enjoy those properties. I didn't. But um, mm. you know, this one, so five out of ten. You know, take it as you will. But um, I'd say every JSA fan, every All Star Squadron fan, should watch it because your mileage may vary. But for me, yeah, it was a little bit of a disappointment. Believe you might love it though. I I don't know. I mean. Um, I'm, we're, we're not always seeing eye to eye on everything. Horror wise, we're always spot on, but you know, there's, <laughs> there's other properties where we sometimes, you know, uh, you know, go back and forth with each other. So yeah, have a look at it, Billy, and then come, we'll come back on a future episode and you can tell me what you think. And listeners, please chime in. Tell me how wrong I am. If you, if you loved it or if you agree with me, tell me why. You know, and um, we'll discuss that on the show because, after all, it it um, pertains to the All Star Squadron, yeah. um, the Justice Society, uh, which we're now big fans of, right, Billy? We've we've always mm -hmm. loved them, but now doing the podcast, it, it's become an obsession <laughs> for the both of us. <laughs> for real, yeah, for real. <laughs> so, Billy, now I've yeah. already told the listeners which two issues we're going to be talking about. You're going to, of course, be doing the synopsis for issue 12. I'm going to be doing the one for 13. Now, issue 12 wraps up the storyline that's been running in the previous two issues. Since uh, issue 10, we've been dealing with this alien, this supposed alien invasion of Earth. And now you and I can get into spoiler territory. We don't have to hold back anymore. And, and we'll go full on and let the listeners know that this is not what it seems at all. And um, you're going to be doing the synopsis. Can you also mm -hmm. give us the specs for issue 12? Since I don't have them in front of me, I just prepared mm -hmm. for issue 13. <laughs> 
Yeah, this, like I said, All-Star Squadron, uh, number 12, cover date August 1982. Uh, we have, you know, Rascally Roy uh, with the scripts, and then our our team, the same as the last few issues, and I think my favorite uh, by a long shot, uh, Adrian Gonzalez and Jerry Ordway. And then uh, we have Carl Gafford doing the colors and John Costanza as letterer. Oh, and then, of course, uh, Len Wein as editor. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if, so then we got, yeah, Doomsday Begins at Dawn. What a great <laughs> name there, huh? <laughs> well done, Roy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he went to the, the Stan Lee School of Dramatic uh, Writing, so yeah. <laughs> you always get something like that from him. <laughs> Definitely, man. There's more Stan Lee, um, you know, well, Stan Lee, um, uh, what, what would you call it? Like, I'm not going to say alliteration, but there's more Stanley, that, that kind of type of um, philosophy Stan had about writing superheroes that's going to come forward that Roy followed in issue 13. When we get to it, Billy, I'm going to be talking about how, you know, Stan and Roy, they believe that characters can just, um, you know, you could have many, many multiple panels of characters just talking and no action. And that, that would still look interesting, according to them, because they're dressed in costume. <laughs> <laughs> That's a philosophy, apparently, that Roy followed based mm -hmm. on what Stan taught him. And uh, I get that straight from the All-Star Companion, apparently, you know, <laughs> this, this was what Roy was doing, <laughs> which doesn't always work for me. But we'll get to that when we get to 13. So, so mm -hmm. Billy, I just quickly want to run through the cast here before you start your synopsis. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is the basically the full cast that we got in issues uh, 11 and 12. Uh, well, in issues 10 and 11. We've got Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, uh, the Atom, Hulk Girl, Hulk Man, Commander Steel, Firebrand, the Ro Robot Man, and of course, the Shining Knight. And then mm -hmm. again, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, President, shows up as well as Anton Haster, which was revealed to be the villain from Flash Comics number one way back in mm -hmm. 1939 and 1940 in the golden age uh, hawkman's very first villain that he ever faced he showed up at the end of issue 11 and um then we've also got brief appearances by of course winston churchill who's still on american soil at this point in time fresh off of the mm -hmm. arcadia conference he's, he's soon slated to be heading back home to britain and we'll see more of that in issue 13. so billy lay it on us what is exactly what is happening in this issue <laughs> okay here we go as hawkman recounts his origin and also how he knows their antagonist hastor or hath set <clears throat> sir justin marvels at hawkman's story and the five all-stars head to a military base the army has a massive force gathered to try and stop the quote-unquote alien invader but will it be enough meanwhile about the flying eyeball, Hawkgirl and the Atom fight, uh, fight Hester. He's more than a match for both of them. In the middle of pummeling them, he recounts his origin story and his part in the war so far. Hester then pilots the eye to the military base and begins to assault the helpless soldiers. The remaining All-Stars then use a hot air balloon to board the ship, but Hester's technology is still more than enough to hold the team off in that bay. Then Hawkman challenges Hester to a one-on-one -on -one battle to the death. All right, buddy, what did you think of this one? <laughs> awesome. You know, um, if you take only the first two issues chronicling this story into account, right, Billy, issues, 11, issues 10 and 11, 
then the story seems a little bit out there. It seems like, why did Roy put this in in the middle of the war? And we couldn't really mention a lot when we were discussing those two issues. But now, it, it sort of, everything ties in together nicely at the end here. Because um, it is related to the war, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Because um, these scientists that have been um, hijacked <laughs> and their flying eye, um, mm -hmm. which was based on the eye of Horus, right? that had been hijacked by Anton Hester, they all they created this eye in order to end the threat of war looming over the human race, the extinction of the human race. They wanted to prevent that by introducing this fake threat that would then pull the nations of the world together. Much like we mentioned during our last, last episode, I think we called it the Watchmen scenario. Mm -hmm. So I love that. Um, but, you know, this is not an original concept by Roy. Like I said, it's been done in some sci-fi... Um, stories in the past i i don't know which one specifically but i know roy was inspired by one he a sci-fi story he heard over a radio show at least that's what he said in interviews what inspired him but he can't remember the particular story though so mm -hmm. you know this this idea is interesting it's not roy's original idea but it could work right billy think about it you know an external threat appears suddenly the world starts working together to deal with a problem global warming is such a threat but that's not working at the moment <laughs> you know um that it's not working i mean in pulling governments together in some some parts of course it's working but um so you know uh, the interesting concept that's what i'm what i what i mean and of, of course the execution of the storyline and and the the heavy flashback sequences where we see basically a blow-by-blow -blow retelling of Flash Comics number one, where Hawkman battled Hester for the first time. So that, that part was great. And of course, the art mm -hmm. by uh, by Jerry Ordway and Gonzalez just sings throughout the entire issue. So I'm going to mm -hmm. give this uh, yeah a, a two huge thumbs up. Uh, mm -hmm. Great issue, fantastic action sequences. Billy, what about you? Yeah, I loved it. I mean, and, you know, like I said in the synopsis, you get to, you know, origin stories. You get the origin story where, you know, Hathset kills Hawkman, like you said, from uh, uh, Flash Comics number one. And then, you know, it's just like kind of again and the again. The reincarnation. <laughs> yeah, reincarnation. The cycle of reincarnation, yeah. I think it is, yeah. Yeah. And then you see, you know, Hathek get killed by Hawkman point blank with a crossbow <laughs> right to the heart. It's, so it's pretty graphic, man. These stories they're, they're yeah. counting here and showing I'm, are pretty graphic. I mean, think about the Golden Age, you know, was pretty um, graphic. I mean, uh, if you mm -hmm. count stuff like, you know, you know, Batman sh blowing, you know, people away with guns, <laughs> you know, and that yeah. happened in the Golden, mm -hmm. Golden Age of Captain America machine gunning people. You have Hawkman shooting his very first enemy with a crossbow bolt through the heart you know so yeah the golden age was was a, was a you know you know you've recently been on a show with mike from comics in the golden age where you discussed some ec comics that's firmly still wrapped up in the mm -hmm. golden age just pre-atomic age comics right so yeah very violent very brutal and yeah um they dealt with threats directly <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah so um i i liked it it's almost it, it's I haven't read Flash Comics number one, but I'd say since I, I don't own the Golden Age Hawkman archives, which I assume uh, that it's included in there. But, you know, Ordway and Gonzalez do a great job and, and it's riveting stuff, right, Billy? I'm on the edge of my mm -hmm. seat here. Basically, uh, not only is the crossbow scene, the crossbow killing 
horrific. The most horrific part for me is where Hathset plunges the dagger, that silver or that <laughs> glass dagger, transparent dagger mm-hmm. that Sh- um, Shira, um, you know, her intuition forced her to take and conceal in her wings during the last couple of issues. He plunges mm-hmm. that dagger straight into Carter's breast, or I should say mm-hmm. Prince Khufu's breast, and then it sticks out of his breast as he utters his, well, <laughs> promise or curse to Hathset. Yeah. And yeah. um, the blood's pooling out of the wound, and it's pretty horrific, like you say, mm-hmm. for a superhero comic. And yeah. for for a superhero comic in the Bronze Age. And then, you know, we've got this, this great scene where you know, um, uh, we see Hawkman's origin, uh, where he realizes he's a re- uh, the reincarnated Prince Khufu, and he dons his his uh, wings and his mask and his belt of uh, ninth metal for the first time, and uh, even you know selects one of his weapons from his um, ancient weapons collection to help him out in the fight against Haster for the first time. So you know th- these things are epic. That's what that's the right word to use here, Billy. It's an epic origin, even though some oh, parts yeah. of it is is it doesn't really make sense. It it intimates that <laughs> Prince Khufu was this scientist, and he he had these ancient scientific knowledge, which even we were are not privy to. And Haster, well, Hath said wanted that way back when he saw that as magic, but but Khufu knew that it wasn't. It was science. So it, it falls in line with myths like Atlantis and, and how did the Egyptians construct the pyramids, you know. They they said that they had, you know, a science that was lost to the ages, that we that, right. that helped them to do that. Um, so, you know, uh, that happened, and I, I like that part as they included it in Hawkman's origin. That's why this Hawkman from Earth 2, the Golden Age Hawkman's origin, would always be infinitely more interesting for me than the... Silver Age Hawkman um, and the Earth One Hawkman, I should say. You know the Thanagar the Thanagarian uh, angle to his, um, you know, origin yeah. there. I don't. I, I'm not saying I don't like that. I love Silver Age Hawkman. You know Joe Kubert, and um, mm-hmm. you know even when Hawkman appeared in the Justice League, I I always loved him. I just prefer the Hawkman from World War Two. That's all. Yeah. From from this, yeah, the the Golden Age. So, Billy, you know, all of that is great. And then we've got this confrontation uh, in the, sh- the ship where the Atom and um, uh, Hawkgirl go up against Hester. And we see Hester, Hester using these mental powers that is newly acquired for him, right? I mean, yeah. the explanation they give is that the scientists who developed the ship, they were going to power the entire ship, of course, with Hester's electrical genius, but also with their minds, working in unison mm-hmm. they were create going to create a uni mind of a sort that would uh, allow the ship to 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 fly at you know um a natural speed and and emit these bolts of energy powered by the the, the minds of these scientists in these cerebro tubes which is a great name <laughs> you know yeah. i love it and then of course you've got the atom giving it his best shot fighting haster you know <laughs> fists against uh, psychic energy basically and I love that part then not only do it we we just get Hawkman's origin we also end up getting Haster's um, second origin if you want to call it that right Billy after what happened mm-hmm. after Hawkman defeated him mm-hmm. in fact he didn't die right like it like it happened in Flash Comics number one he survived he nursed himself back to health um, <laughs> he escaped um, then he ended up 
because he had been approached by this um, the the mathematician uh, Professor Napier, right? And uh, yes. he had dismissed him at first in 1929, but then he realized that the professor's mathematical predictions were accurate. So he thought that might help him against a future confrontation against Hawkman. So after he he uh, got back on his feet, he sought out Napier, uh, and then he discovered this hidden base uh, in on Napier's uh, sprawling estate. And that's mm-hmm. where all of these scientists who had been mysteriously disappearing had uh, conglomerated, right? Believed to create this this eye, the eye uh, of Horus, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> but in order to enact this plan to save the world by introducing this alien threat. So, um, you know, they had the, the most idealistic intentions, but it didn't work out because Haster was part of the equation, <laughs> which you would have thought <laughs> the, the mathematician could have predicted, right? Professor Napier with his formula that predicted everything he failed to predict this, <laughs> you know, that mm-hmm. an evil scientist would appropriate their invention for his own sinister schemes. Mm-hmm. So poor Dr. Napier. And then we, we get the answers to a couple of questions, right, Billy? Like, what? for instance, I want you to talk about this. The, the greatest mystery or the first mystery we encountered was this man being hurled from the center of the eye in issue 11. Mm-hmm. Or was that issue 10, I should say? And uh, why why is that? Why did that happen? Well, I mean, I like the whole part, too, where it shows um, when he first, ha- Haster first arrived at the, like, I don't know, like I said, base or whatever it is there. Yeah. And they've already got the eye very much constructed, like a good bit of it anyway. And then, they, then it just, you know, time progresses a little bit. And he's like pretending to be one of them, but secretly, you know, he's been alive for how many what centuries I guess you know but he's trying to just pretend that he's just some regular guy and a scientist and all this stuff and none of the stuff from you know back in Egyptian times and stuff like that but he has that alien android guy created already and everything as well yeah and then he's really like plotting against everybody there and it seems like he really has it in for that Dr. Napier guy yeah basically I mean he doesn't murder Napier first. He murders one of the other scientists, the, um, I forgot his name, uh, Professor Owens, uh, because yeah. Owens was one of the few who could resist his um, mental domination. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he that's the person he ejects from the eye in issue 10, as you might remember, right, Billy? Um, yeah, yeah. And that's what, what causes Hawkman to... to you know, to to realize that this is a conspiracy that's that could not be quite what it seems. You know, it might not be truly alien in origin. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, but all of these questions are answered very nicely by Roy, even though it seemed a little bit, you know, clunky and too convoluted in the first two installments of this tale. This one, I think, does a good job of, of bringing it home. And, uh, you know, the action panels are great. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised when... Uh, this apparently happened in Flash Comics too, where the souls, or the as they say, the Ka of uh, Prince Khufu and Hathset, they mm-hmm. they engage in a battle after Hawkman yeah, confronts Hester. They realize that the All-Star Squadron, even though they've managed to gain entry into this eye, while the eye is blowing up this military base, uh, in order to kill Churchill and uh, FDR. That, that That's the first step 
that um, Hester wants to take. Since Churchill and FDR have decided to resist him, they're not going to go the route of the cowardly Axis leaders who've decided to, you know, sort of like band together and maybe not resist. But here, you know, um, he wants to take them out, um, does Hester. He wants to kill FDR and Churchill. So the All-Star Squadron's busy defending them. Sir Justin's staying behind, right, as a, a bodyguard. And we'll see that play out in, a, in another story in the next issue. He's yeah. protecting Churchill and FDR. But the rest of the All-Stars, in, a, in what is very weird and incongruous, it's a hot air balloon, which, which <laughs> seems to be the only thing that could sneak up on the eye. <laughs> Maybe right. because it's not, there's no electronics in there, yeah, you know, me- mechanical, yeah, mechanical, or or minimum uh, mechanical uh, apparatus that it could shut down, or because we know the eye has that ability, right, to mm-hmm. to briefly stall any, uh, you know, human mechanism, human-made mechanism. So they approach mm-hmm. in this this hot air balloon. Uh, even Hawkman, who's not flying, he's sitting in nice, nice and safe in this little cab. <laughs> And then they they jump onto the the surface of this um, you know this yeah, eye, right. and then uh, they try to get in, but Haster just decides screw that he's going to let them in because he's all powerful. <laughs> he's not scared. He wants them to witness his victory, and mm-hmm. then he continue as they're in this main control room of the eye. You know the the eye still blasting away at the soldiers, destroying all the tanks and artillery. And then Haster's fighting the All Star Squadron, and that's when Hawkman grabs this knife that Shira, you know, luckily brought along, or fortunately. Uh-huh. And it turns out that this nice knife, this dagger that he was killed with in his previous life as Khufu by Hatset, mm-hmm. has a has forged a psychic connection between mm-hmm. him. Now, obviously, this is a magical connection, Billy. So, this brings into question: right. was all Khufu's you know, science that he did in the in the past was it all scientific based, or was there an element of magic in there? <laughs> you know, it right. seemed to yeah. be a mixture of of magic and science, um, alchemy. Yeah. So he holds this knife aloft, and that is enough to sort of um, Doctor Strange style astrally project his car into the ether, and then Hathse does the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I should say Anton Hester does the same. Hathset emerges from him and they engage in a battle. And at first, of course, Hawkman's losing. But what happens then, Billy? Well, yeah, it's funny. You see them, like you said, they're astral forms or something like that, struggling. And it looks like Hester's like choking uh, Carter, you know, Hawkman there, to, and says, and slow. And so, slowly but inexorably, the horrified All-Stars watch as a savage spirit of Hathset draws nearer to a second and even more final victory over his most ancient enemy. And it's like, wait a minute, now what? And the ship looks like it's going to crash. And it says, now within the ship, a second hand, a smaller than the first, but no less determined, reaches out to grasp the, which holds the blade of Hathset. So basically, Hawkgirl grabs the blade and kind of like is able to then project her, you know, whatever you want to call it, her spirit or, you know, her, her mental, like her mentally put her spirit into the fight as well. And then the two of them kick the crap out of them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, ast- an astral battle, uh, quite, quite yeah. a, you know, epic one. I, I like the fact that they end up, you know, teaming up to beat uh, Hathset. After all, he murdered both of them, you know, in their first incarnations. And um, yeah, that's something, though, that I think would later on be called into question, right, Billy? Because 
as Roy's writing it now, it seems that Hawkman, this is his second incarnation. But, you know, right. according to how I read it and how I've always believed their reincarnations happen, and it's been portrayed like like that, I think, on, on shows like... Um, um, uh, you know what's what's that show called? I, I don't watch it. Um, it's it's a superhero show. Um, oh damn it! Now I can't get the name. Oh, 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 a new one? No, no, no. It's it's one of the ones. Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, how can I oh, how can I forget okay. that? Legends yeah, of Tomorrow. I've never seen that one. I, I watched the first couple of episodes. It just wasn't for me. But as I've come to understand it, it crossed over with Supergirl and with the Flash TV mm. show a couple of times, and um, they've been reincarnated many times. You know, but but back cool. here, this this might not have been a thing, because even on the cover, Qbert's got, you know, um, Hawkman saying that you murdered me once, Haster, but I won't let you kill me again. But the way I I understood it is that they've been reincarnated maybe a, a dozen times at least up to this point, and in every life, you know, um, it you know Haster has or Hathset has managed to kill them again and again and again. Yeah. So they've been doomed to repeat this cycle. But but here it seems that it's only happened twice, and that this is the final time because they break this cycle of reincarnation with Hawkman's defeat of uh, Hathset's car or his spirit. So mm-hmm. that part's good. I, I like that. I, I, that's interesting. That Hawkman is not tied to this this curse any longer, and and neither is Shira. But you mm-hmm. know, I I'm wondering a little bit about you know how Roy interpreted that. At, would would this have been a only their second incarnation? Yeah, but you know it happened in the golden age too, right? He technically broke the cycle of reincarnation there, after mm-hmm. he killed in the golden age uh, Anton Hester, and it turned out that he didn't. Now you know in Roy's writing, but I'm fine with yeah. that. In fact, Hester never shows up again, right, Billy? I, I, I never read about him again, at least. Um, yeah, unless it's something very recent. Yeah, it seems to be like he's been lobotomized by this encounter with Hawk Girl and Hawkman in the astral plane <laughs> or so so he's completely he's you know brain dead almost so they lead him away after they land this eye now this is another interesting part i want you to speak on that billy who ends up saving everyone including fdr and churchill and the shining knight <laughs> well it's technically well, liberty bell but you know yeah what happens so, so- I guess they didn't think about this ahead of time, but Hasser was really the one with his like mental powers that was controlling this eye. It wasn't like a the Millennium Falcon where he's at the control panel like flying a ship around. He was using like his mind and once they like, you know, psychically lobotomized him or whatever they did to him, the ship starts going berserk like it's gonna smash into the army base and kill all the army guys and kill everybody aboard the ship too. And Liberty Bell, the only one really thinking well on her feet here. She goes to Robot Man and Steel because they're both like hooked up to those like giant test tubes. Cerebro tubes, yeah. Yeah, and she's like talking to Robot Man to get him to like kind of wake up because he's kind of like you know out like out of it and try to say to him like, hey, you need to kind of since you're connected to all these other scientists and everybody else in these tubes, you need to like get them to like land the plane safely or we're all gonna crash and die. And it's kind of funny because she's there standing face to face with this tube talking to Robot Man. And all of a sudden, it zooms in on his face. <laughs> it looks like he smiles. <laughs> yeah, well, it, he always looks yeah. like he's smiling. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, then it, then it works. You know, 
Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I like the part where the you know there's a brief flicker in his eyes, and then it becomes stronger, and his eyes start burning with this mm -hmm. um, this violet light, showing that he she's reached him, and he's exerting control uh, with the help of the minds of the other scientists and Commander Steel, of course, too. But mm -hmm. it it sort of intimates that Robot Man's will is so indomitable that he'd managed to to uh, maintain or to seize control of this vessel at this uh, you know point in time when it was going to crush yeah. everybody so well done to the entire squadron but particularly to liberty bell and robot man so you know bell's quick decision this will not be her last she's had many in the past already mm -hmm. this will lead to something that will happen in the next issue which i will say is well deserved right billy and uh, mm -hmm. something that that we've been seeing the way roy's been writing her character it's been going that way in in, in any case Mm -hmm. um, because she's got really strong leadership qualities, but also uh, a knack for dealing with these situations where it requires quick thinking. Yeah, she can think on the fly. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Whereas people like the Atom are more like, you know, hands-on, <laughs> everything is solved with your fists. And, and mm -hmm. kind of Robot Man and Commander Steel too. You know, even though they're mm -hmm. scientists, they sort of, because now they've been turned into these tanks, they, they end up, you know acting like you'd think a tank would, you know, which is just roll over everything or, or use brute force first before yeah. resorting to their minds. But but Liberty Bell's different. She always thinks first. Um, so that's that's great. And then we've got, you know, Churchill and um, Roosevelt yet again <laughs> congratulating, <laughs> congratulating and praising the All-Star Squadron on another world-saving you know, um, feat that they've managed to accomplish. So, you know, Churchill's had a very eventful stay, even though it's only been for a, a couple of weeks, or almost mm -hmm. a month here in, in the States. There's <laughs> been many supernatural threats, or, or superhuman threats, I, sh I should say, that almost took his life. So, yeah. no wonder he wants to leave with a bodyguard, <laughs> which we'll see happen in the next <laughs> issue. So, Billy, mm -hmm. any final thoughts on this issue by... Um, you know, Roy and Co. The only thing I'll say is when you look at this crazy spaceship, sometimes that Haster was flying around in, uh, kind of reminds me of a, a spaceship that was buried in the ice in the Antarctic and a team found it and there was a dog and there's aliens in the movie and, you know, uh, it came out in 1982 uh, as well. Uh, 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 <laughs> dude, John Carpenter is, uh, you know, sitting fuming that Roy didn't give him any any <clears throat> credit for <laughs> whatever happened. Yeah, no, no, mm -hmm. it, it has a vague resemblance. But, um, you know, mm -hmm. the threat level, as it turns out, not that apocalyptic at all. But um, yeah, no. Churchill and, and FDR, they go on to credit this threat as greater than fascism at the end. So, you know, wow. for them, it was apocalyptic. Uh, true. <laughs> but it turns out old Anton Hester just, you know, as, as you have a supervillain, as you expect a supervillain to, to be, he just wanted to dominate the world. World domination. Mm -hmm. That was his role, his, his aim. And also, you know, he followed all the supervillain tropes, even though he knew he was acting out normal supervillain tropes uh, he even mentioned it at one point in time where he says oh okay i see what you're doing hawk girl in the atom you're trying to stall me until help arrives well then i might as well indulge you i might as well f fall into this role of supervillain and here's my monologue and my origin story <laughs> oh yeah he had some more uh, you know 
crappy things to say about all the all-star squadron but especially i think uh hawk girl and uh the adam there because he was talking all sorts of crap to poor al pratt at the end yeah. of that last issue <laughs> yeah but you know i will gave a good accounting of himself he was you know he was called a, a what is a, a, a slab of muscle uh, <laughs> yeah meat basically the in the previous issue but you know um this time around i think he the atom he gave the uh, doctor hester a run for his money there for a while or maybe hester was just playing with him because he ended up swatting him like a fly in any case hurling him into a hawk girl at one point in time uh, telekinetically mm-hmm. so still um all of the old star squadron well uh, the the roll call that i mentioned earlier they were all involved to some degree and um yeah they managed to again triumph so further cementing their usefulness to uh, the country and the world as a whole i think in this case right billy so shows you mm-hmm. fdr did the right thing by getting them together yeah. and um you know, using them as a sort of a spear or a spearhead here in uh, on, the, on the home front at least because as it turns out the the axis have a lot of um you know super powered uh devices and weapons and people under their control we'll see that in future issues too but you know there are also the there's also the threat of old villains of the the justice society who are stepping up and using the war to their advantage which is exactly what dr hester did in this issue so i think fdr knew about that you know this fdr at least on earth too he knew that you know there's threats that there's evils that would try to use this uh, unstable uh, you know, time that is the war, the world war to their advantage. Mm-hmm. And that's also yeah. another reason why he might have formed the All-Star Squadron, not just to battle the Axis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so far it's it's been working great for FDR. So that's probably a reason why he's going to be re-elected, at least on Earth too. <laughs> Soon. <laughs> yeah, for real. He will be re-elected again, yeah. So, Billy, mm-hmm. a great issue. Um any addition? Let me see what else I have here. Oh, I already mentioned that, you know, the design of this eye was based on the Eye of Horus, which is funny because that ties back to to the Hawkman and Hawk Girl. You know, Anton Hester, he had nothing. I don't think he, maybe he had something to do with the design of the eye. I mean, the eye was already almost completely constructed when he arrived at that secret base, you know, offering mm-hmm. to lend his electrical genius to the to the final completion, you know, to the completion of this eye. But, um, yeah, yeah, that, you know, this ties back to the Egyptian story that is, um, you know, running right through this storyline, which is Hawkman and Hawk Girl's tragic uh, beginnings. And also, you know, this eye resembling the Eye of Horus, which in fact did, you know, in Egyptian mythology, it did rampage across Egypt, destroying, you know, leaving destruction in its wake. And so, you know, we've also got, you know, a mention of, uh, you know, Anubis, the the dog-headed or jackal-headed god of the dead. You know, uh, it shows up in the flashback where, mm-hmm. um, you know, Hawkman and, or I should say, Khufu and uh, Shaira, Chaira, as they called her back then, they were <laughs> going to be, you know, killed by um, Hathset. Uh, the, the Anubis shows up. So, you know, Horus, Anubis, you've got all these Egyptian gods playing a role in the story. Um, with visual cues like the eye, uh, the spaceship also hearkening back to that. And then, you know, you've got um, also a, a bit of uh, mention when, uh, I think it was when Napier, Dr. Napier first introduced himself to Haster, 
uh, Haster wouldn't believe his mathematical formulas because he said that everybody knows that the next war is going to be fought by dirigibles and and poisonous gas, <laughs> just like in World War One. Uh, so you know that that's a silly notion, but many people did actually believe that. You know, they did believe that that's the way the war was going to go. Of course, not, not neither of those two things happened in World War Two. It was too impractical, too dangerous for your own troops. You know, Billy and dirigibles is just. You know, yeah. with with modern air, well, aircraft at that time, improving in leaps and bounds, they were just huge sitting ducks. So, so Doctor yeah. Hester turned out to be a fool there. And uh, you know, that's basically everything I could could come up with uh, based on extra notes. Um, but I really do want to read now. You know, Flash Comics number one. I really feel <laughs> we're obligated to get our hands on that somehow. It's just really hard yeah. to get get a hold of that Golden Age Hawkman archives. Yeah, for real. So anyway, Billy, now it's my turn, right? We're heading into mm -hmm. the next issue, which is mm -hmm. uh, issue thirteen. Now, before I start, uh, I must mention to to the listeners and to you, Billy, that this is sort of Roy taking a breather, or he wants the readers to also, uh, you know, s sit back and relax a little bit and get to know some of the team members uh, a bit better. And also, you know, I, I think Roy felt that things have been, you know, escalating and, you know, you can't just keep delivering action. You kind of have to have this quiet issue every now and then where people are taking some R&R. &R. And this is very mm -hmm. much what happens in this issue, which makes sense, you know, because you kind of, if you're the All-Star Squadron facing threat after threat, you know, like any good soldier, you need some... Uh, rest and some recuperation so and this is what he, Roy gave us and it was a pleasant enough issue I liked it the only thing is I'm even though I'm a fan of Inker you know um, Mike DiCarlo and I'm also mm -hmm. a fan of Mike DiCarlo's art once you've gotten used to the team of Jerry Ordway and uh, Adrian Gonzalez and then you get Adrian Gonzalez and Mike DiCarlo it's it there's a huge difference actually between the art from the previous yeah. issue and this. So I'm not saying I didn't like the art. I did quite enjoy this art a lot. But, um, you know, it's not Jerry Ordway and Adrian Gonzalez by, by a long stretch, right, Billy? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. To me, I just, they've done how many in a row now? And not only were you used to it, I just, you know, I just still think they were the best so far. Of you course. Know, I've skimmed ahead and looked at some other ones too, like even further ahead and, there, again, some really good names popping up here and there, you know, and of course you get Jerry Ordway, you know, throughout and doing some covers eventually and this and that. But yeah, Gonzalez and Ordway are the best. I agree. Yeah. So that's it for for us. That's just um, I can't I can't even you know brook any argument. But maybe our listeners will chime in and say you know why we're why we're mistaken. But <laughs> yeah, it's just so pretty to look at. It's it's really beautiful art. But later on, the the artist, like you say, will change. But you know the stories will still stay great and consistent. Um, maybe there there will be a few clunky ones coming along uh, later. But but I think I, mm. it's safe to say that the first twenty one or twenty twenty two issues. No, no, even more than that. I say the first twenty five issues of All Star Squadron, story wise and art wise. I just loved it. You know, the art the art mm -hmm. changed here and there, but um, uh, Roy could do no wrong. I think. Uh, but that's just mm -hmm. me. That's because I'm a fan of Roy. Not a lot of people are, you know, based on off of what you you like in terms of writing mm -hmm. style. But yeah. this one is a pleasant enough issue, right, Billy? It's got some great character mm -hmm. moments, and it 
for me at least it thinks it it sort of endears you to most of the characters here so this is specifically all-star squadron number 13 uh, cover dated September 1982, on sale June 24th, 1982, and uh, 60 cent cover price edited by Lynn Ween, and again a cover by Joe Kubert. Two great covers, by the way, this week, right, Billy, that we're talking, going to mm-hmm. be talking about. Two great Kubert oh, yeah. covers. And the title of this story was One Day During the War, written by Roy Thomas, penciled Adrian Gonzalez, inked by Mike DiCarlo, lettered by Ben Oda, and colored by Carl Gaffert. So, okay, the synopsis here, fairly basic, um, because it's it's got um, a lot of short stories really thrown in, right? Billy vignettes featuring mm-hmm. what the All-Star Squadron's up to in small groups or as, um, you know, single heroes going around dealing with things in their personal lives. Yeah. So the, the issue starts off with Liberty Bell being elected chairman of the All-Star Squadron uh, by a mm-hmm. landslide victory, apparently. And mm-hmm. uh, then um, the, the the vignettes commence. Commander Steele, he heads off to tell his old girlfriend that Hank Haywood, his alter <laughs> ego, is dead. And he's, he's also looking for her father, Professor Giles, his mm-hmm. lab partner who helped him to develop... His, his exoskeleton and made him Commander Steel essentially, but he learns that he has passed away. Um, Robot Man learns that a lawyer is after him, trying to have him declared a public menace and eventually turn him into scrap metal. <laughs> and he deals with that lawyer in typical Robot Man fashion. The Shining Knight um, accompanies Winston Churchill back to England, uh, inadvertently, I think, breaking Firebrand's heart causing her to become racist. <laughs> no, that's not the real reason she became racist. But um, as the Shining Knight returns to England, he manages to stave off a squadron of uh, German bombers who were threatening London at the time, uh, putting a smile on old Winnie's face in the process. Mm-hmm. Liberty Bell, Johnny Quick and Firebrand head off to a hospital in San Francisco to visit her uh, brother Rod, who's recovering from his his injuries sustained in the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, Brandy deals with uh, her budding racism as she learns from her brother Rod that everything is not always black and white, that there are different degrees of of patriotism and also that racism is wrong. And then, of course, Brandy sees the light. Um, And uh, the issue ends with uh, Al Pratt and his girlfriend um, joining up at the Jefferson Memorial where um, they spend some time together before he's due to be shipped out. So mm-hmm. a great little issue full of these uh, uplifting stories, I think, right, Billy, where we see the mm-hmm. All-Star Squadron still all in costume. <laughs> I think none of them ever show up in their <laughs> human, well, in their no. disguises, except briefly for Robot Man when he dons his robot, his rubber mask, oh, you know, as no. Paul Dennis. <laughs> but he quickly <laughs> takes that off again to deal with his lawyer. Mm-hmm. Great issue. Uh, what did you think of this issue? I thought it was great. Like you said, the vignettes are all great. Before the vignettes start, you get that great scene of the team. Uh, I think where the heck does it say they are at the Smithsonian in Washington, mm. having their uh, their uh, meeting here when they elect Liberty Bell the new chairperson, which is super cool. They also talk about you know, well maybe we should bring in other members, and you get these two pages back to back that are super cool, where you have you know little like pinups of 
Batman, the Spectre, Superman, Wonder Woman, you know, the Golden Age Flash, and then um, Vigilante and Crimson Avenger. Crimson Avenger, yeah. Stripesy yeah. and uh, you know, the Star Spangled Kid. Yeah, Wildcats there, yeah. Airwave, Dan the Dynamite and his uh um mentor TNT, <laughs> Dollman, yeah. Mr. America wearing his wig. <laughs> Manhunter, like you said, uh, did you mention um, Mr. Terrific? I think you did. No, I forgot oh, you didn't. him. And then, and then Green Arrow and Speedy. Yeah, oh, so yeah. it's really cool. I love those. Like that's really cool. Like to see that, even if those, you know, characters aren't going to like really appear in the issue and story or whatever going forward, it's still cool just to see it, just for them to tick off all these numbers, all these names, you know, these uh, other Golden Age heroes. It's yeah. really cool. I like it. Yeah, eventually they're all gonna appear in storylines, and um, you know they're all gonna you know because the Shining Knight goes on to say that he's spoken to his his comrades, the Seven Soldiers of Victory, and that mm-hmm. they've all um, promised to you know join the All Star Squadron if needed, mm-hmm. you know if they're called up, and then yeah. of course Robot Man's been doing some research as a scientist. I think he's been more interested in in finding out about who else is out there. So Robot mm-hmm. Man's been identifying these heroes who were never part of a team, right, Billy? At least yeah. that's what he says. And um, mm-hmm. that, you know, they're all available. They haven't promised uh, to join up, but I think Robot Man's more, you know, he's uh, driving home the point that they could be called upon, you know, if, mm-hmm. if approached. Yeah, to help out based mm-hmm. on what they've been doing um, so far. And mm-hmm. then your Plastic Man, of course, is going to show up again. I love it when he shows up, by the way. And <laughs> this issue is a little bit sad, though, because uh, like we've mentioned just now when we discussed the previous issue and in my synopsis, Sir Justin ends up leaving the yeah. All-Star Squadron. He's going to announce that at the table here. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that did affect uh, Firebrand a little bit because with Sir Justin pre- present, she was very toned down. She was very um, rational, and um, it seems that right after he announced that, her reaction was to suddenly become this raging uh, racist, this this bigot, Mm -hmm. which which is not in line with her character so far at all. Uh, And her Mm -hmm. brother has recovered since, so it doesn't really make sense that she's still upset that because he was at death's door, remember, Billy, in the previous issues right after the attack, Mm -hmm. and she was very concerned for him then, but she was more... Um, dealing with her own powers at that point in time and save, helping the All-Star Squadron to save lives. But suddenly to introduce this racist element, I think this is not bad writing on Roy's part. This is more Roy saying this is her reaction to to some something in her life that was a constant that now being taken away suddenly. I think that's Sir Justin. Because mm-hmm. we, we know what will happen with them eventually. And even Johnny Quick comments on that You know, later oh, yeah. on. He says, how do you feel about Sir Justin just taking off? Brandy, you were... You know, uh, you know, getting quite cozy with with the knight, mm-hmm. and then Brandy, oh, yeah. she she's she's pretty harsh when she says, "Yeah, he's a knight in shining armor, but that's not what we what I need right now." <laughs> you know, I, I need to be by myself. You know, and mm-hmm. I need to take on the Japs and kill all these. You know, so they use the J word. Uh, apparently, oh, yeah. Roy got permission from editorial to use that because he wanted to make it seem more authentic. You know, Brandy's hatred towards these people, and then her eventual. You know, um, you know, uh, reneging on this uh, racist rant that she was doing at the time. She basically was convinced by her brother Rod, who's now almost fully recovered, that mm-hmm. she's wrong, 
and she's seeing the light. You know, believe if only all racists could could do that. If only all not that Brandy was a racist from the get go. I'm just saying that you know a, lo a lot of the time in war when a loved one is hurt by people from another nation that sort of tends to rear its head sometimes even in non-racist peoples you know and mm -hmm. also the propaganda at the time by the states is is reprehensible you know they were <clears throat> point you know they were making the japanese out to be these animals you know which they they did the, the soldiers definitely behaved like animals in many cases but the japanese people though weren't you know right. so i'm going to be talking about that later during our earth prime archive segment but yeah. you know, Billy, didn't you like the the part where they elect uh, the chairman and Sir Justin uses his helmet, <laughs> as, you know, to 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 carry the votes in, to drop the yeah. votes in, <laughs> oh, and that's great. And yeah. he even goes on to say that his helmet served a similar purpose whenever votes were taken during the Arthurian era when he was a knight of the Round Table. The Knights of the Round Table, yeah. Oh, damn. And then in order to... They elect Liberty Bell, but she expresses doubts as to her ability. And then everybody mm -hmm. recalls their fondest mem memories of Bell, uh, you know, uh, doing some quick thinking, taking Green Lantern out when he was affected by the Spear of Destiny with the, the, the wooden log that she hurled at him, right? The mm -hmm. log. And then also hurling the fake Kukulkan, you know, in Mexico City th out of the window. <laughs> You know, even yeah. though she was overpowered at the time. And then the probably one of the, my favorite Liberty Bell moments that Sir Justin uh, recalls is when she dove into the frigid water, waters of the Atlantic in order to rope that submarine, <laughs> the, the Nazi U-boat. Yeah. Man, so some great, you know, Liberty Bell moments there that everybody reminisces on. And then you've got uh, the All-Star Squadron now with the new chairman, Mm -hmm. um, after she pounds the gavel on the table, right, Billy? <laughs> yeah. Um, you've got them flying uh, back to uh, this, you know, while they're they're re returning from this uh, from the Smithsonian where they had their meeting, and they've got uh, again they've chartered a bomber, right, or a cargo mm -hmm. plane this time around, I think. Cargo plane. Yeah, yeah, cargo plane, and they're bound for San Francisco. Basically, Liberty Bell and Hawkman's going to drop people off where they want to be because they've they've been given the 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 okay by FDR for some rest and to deal with some personal matters, mm -hmm. and then you know suddenly we've got you know uh, Firebrand you know displaying her powers here. She's thinking about her brother Rod injured. She wants them to drop her off at the hospital, but she starts to lose control a bit of her powers, which hasn't happened up to this point, right? Billy, she's had like we said human torch level control over her flame. Um, but here she's like losing it a bit. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't say she was timid up to this point, but she was definitely more of a, you know, calm kind of character. But when she starts talking about, you know, what happened to her brother, she kind of flips out and she's like, I keep thinking of him cut down by that damned zero. And, and Johnny Quick goes, Brandy, what the devil? And she really starts freaking out, you know, like you said about the whole Japanese thing and showing her hatred towards the whole country rather than just, you know, the the soldiers themselves that were doing the killing and she her firepower starts to go out of control. They're like, whoa, calm down. But, you know, after that, they calm her down. And then, like you said, everybody kind of is going to just go their own way. But the first two to go their own way is <clears throat> Carter and Shaira. Uh -huh. <laughs> I knew uh, you were going to talk about this because you sent me the image <laughs> a while back. Okay, Billy, speak on this. 
Carter and Shaira, they head off to his mansion. And and what happens? This this is a little bit of an awkward writing on Roy's part, but very in you know it's kind of endearing. I I kind of dig it, but it's so weird. It's reading it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't even think they were gonna make it to the mansion. They start making out in the middle of the sky as they're flying around together. I'm thinking, okay, calm down. Like not everybody <laughs> needs to look up in the sky and see two hawk people about to get it on. <laughs> and then you see their shadows like flying towards the mansion, and it says, "24 hours they have." at a mansion received by Shaira as part of her recent inheritance. 24 hours, no more. And you see them land on a balcony. <laughs> and then, time enough, however, for life. And they start embracing. And then the next thing you know, it shows them in front of a bed, hugging and kissing, and time enough for love. Yeah, well, they've already, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They've already halfway, they're halfway naked. They've, you know, yeah. they're, they're thrown their wings on the floor or wherever. And yeah, they're, they're getting naked. And of course, we're not shown the rest, but still, it's heavily implied. Oh, we know what's happening here. And and of course, this is because Carter's going to ship out again, too. And they don't know if they'll see each other again. You know, he could die as a regular soldier because he is just a regular guy when, he's, when he doesn't have his um, gear around. So she knows that, he knows that. So they're making the most of the time. It's just so strange, you know, the way that Roy writes it. it time enough, you know, mm-hmm. dot, dot, dot. For love, <laughs> but you and know, Johnny, Johnny yeah. Quick back on the cargo plane, ain't love grand? I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what he knows what they're getting up to right at this moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then yeah, that leads Johnny into you know that leads into his talking to Brandy about you know um, her and Sir Justin's relationship, basically yeah. sticking his nose in where it doesn't belong, right? <laughs> yeah. And and Brandy says it was nice. You know, my time with Sir Justin was nice. I'll admit that. But, you know, and then she goes on her rant. Now, you know, mm-hmm. Billy, I've always hated it when they've, well, not always, but, you know, most of the time when the character has flame powers, you know, Human mm-hmm. Torch, even Firestorm, although he doesn't technically have flame powers, but he's got a flaming head. People tend to yeah. portray them as hot heads, you know, um, looking before yeah. they leap, you know, that kind of <laughs> characters, uh, hot tempered. Yeah. I get that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's just not always. Um, it, it's too uh, predictable to portray the character the like that. Yeah, in the <laughs> yeah. Legion of Superheroes, it was always Lightning Lad, who was mm-hmm. the hothead, not Sunboy. But Sunboy eventually became the de facto hothead too, because Lightning Lad was toned down. I don't like that. You know, he's at least. I mean, his temper was toned down. But I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that you know, you know, sometimes a character like Brandy could show up, and in fact, this this does become something where she does remain cool and calm, even though she's got flame powers. You mm-hmm. know, her powers are more about control. You know, she can create these intricate shapes with her powers, much like the Human Torch in the 1960s. Although that mm-hmm. sort of did not you know remain something that would the human torch would be able to do later on but he could create like you know like spider-man with his webbing he could create these intricate shapes and (laughs) and practical (laughs) you know effects with his powers yeah brandy could do can do that too we'll see that later as they entertain the 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 hospital the patients Mm -hmm. you know the the soldiers who'd been injured and had been shipped back from pearl harbor so but Mm -hmm. but here she's very much like a hothead and uh, she needs the her the support of her new friends around her to make her, you know, calm down and to see that she, you know, the, the way she's been thinking is wrong. But you know, it's mm-hmm. it's strange that that it went this route. That's why I'm I'm thinking it's got a lot to do with Sir mm-hmm. Justin's departure. 
you know. Um, yeah. But it might also not be. But she should be happy, come on, that her brother's recovering. I mean, he's almost yeah. back on his feet. But then we've got the, my favorite segment in the entire issue, Billy. Um, this is the one involving Commander Steel, Hank Haywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 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 crazy. it's crazy but it's really sad it's i, fe- I really felt for it the is. guy here i mean yeah. he doesn't have a heart of steel <laughs> you know <laughs> he's 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 really hurting in this sequence because you've got him running through the streets of uh, uh new, york. new york yeah he's not in mm-hmm. in san francisco he's in new york because he's mm-hmm. looking in on his old mentor and um a co-scientist who helped him develop the bioretardant formula and also the exoskeleton that that you know made him Commander Steel, Doctor Gilbert Giles, and he mm-hmm. knows that mm-hmm. Doctor Giles, you know, he he was involved with Doctor Giles's daughter. They were going to get married. It was his fiance. She was his fiance. So Gloria, right? He ends mm-hmm. up get, getting to their apartment. He he muscles his way into the apartment a little bit, you know, by following this lady who's unlocking it and saying that, oh, thanks, ma'am, I forgot my key. <laughs> and then he, he knocks on Dr. Giles's door and he sees that the name on the door has been changed to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, well, we'll find out why just now. And then Gloria does, in fact, open the door and she's this, yeah. this, this beautiful redhead. And mm-hmm. uh, then... Of course, she doesn't know who Commander Steel is. He's showing up in his full costume. And he says, excuse me, ma'am, I'd just like to speak to your father. And then, But she invites him in first, and she cries when he mentions that because, you know, her, her, it turns out he died, right? He's dead. Uh, but Hank <laughs> prolonged his life a little by giving him, by showing up to give him the bioretardant formula that they both yeah. developed. So he sort of gave him a little bit more, a few more weeks or months of life. But then she immediately remembers how he died, which was he was reading something about him, mm-hmm. uh, about Commander Steele. Dr. Giles was reading something about Commander Steele when he had the, what was essentially a heart attack, right? Yeah. Um, and then she starts beating on Commander Steele's chest saying, you're a murderer. <laughs> you murdered him. <laughs> and then he's about to show her, he, he wants to reveal the truth to her because he's thinking that this is the only way that she will forgive him but also realize what happened. So he's going to take off his mask when suddenly the the, mm. the answer to the question of why the name on the door <laughs> has been changed uh, is revealed. The door, the name on the door mm. is Farley, right? So this mm. guy bursts into the room saying, why are you annoying my wife? <laughs> and this is... Yeah. What? what the devil are you doing here? Yeah, Captain Farley from the U.S. military. Yeah, this is Gloria's new husband. Because after all, Hank was presumed killed in action. He died. Um, and Gloria, you know, moved on. And this yeah. is her new husband. And so, you know, she shows up. Dis- well, he shows up distressed that Commander Steele's bothering Gloria. He knows about Steele's connection to Gloria's father. So, you know, they briefly, you know, show some politeness but then they eventually ask him listen just get out of here you're upsetting my wife you've upset our <laughs> lives enough mm-hmm. right so it it ends with with them really i i don't know completely writing off commander steel and of course hank haywood too because they even go so far as to mention that hank caused nothing but misery to them you mm-hmm. know uh, but then it it's just encapsulated by these words right billy gloria when she says goodbye to to steel she says you've brought nothing but death to those i loved 
even though he just gave her the the message that Hank Haywood died in action, he missing in action, but he he essentially died a hero, even though, you know, he's Hank Haywood. She still blames the messenger, and she says, mm-hmm. "You've caused, you've brought death into our lives. Get out, whoever you mm-hmm. are behind that mask. Don't come back." <laughs> and that's <laughs> it. And then he says, "Don't worry, Mrs. Farley. You'll never see me you'll again." Never see me again. Yeah, Damn, that's awful. <laughs> that sort of yeah cut me right to the quick there a little bit, and it it's heart wrenching. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, after Steel's heart was put in a blender just now, we see Robot Man dealing with his own problems. But he speak on this. This is quite. I mean, it starts with a great action sequence involving Robot Man saving his best friend Chuck Dixon, or or, or Chuck and his erstwhile girlfriend, right? Yeah. Who who was basically um, also I think his fiance, if I'm not mistaken, Joan. Joan Carter. Yeah. Joan Carter. And uh, so what happens there, Billy? This is an interesting sequence as well. Yeah, he goes over to the, uh, what is it, like a, it almost looks like a factory or whatever, you know, whatever they call the place where he was doing the uh, experiments before. He said that the guy kept going with the experiments after, you know, the whole debacle where uh, his brain was put into the robot. And he smashes through the door because there's some kind of electricity going on outside, like the door sparking and stuff and goes in and they're both laying on the floor completely unconscious and this machine's going berserk so i don't think he can figure out how to do anything to fix it in like any amount of time so he just thinks eh, i'll just smash it so he just goes running head first into it and smashes the crap out of this machine <laughs> yeah man it, took, it, it looks like he took a running leap and turned himself into a human rocket or this metal projectile <laughs> he slammed through this generator Oh, I should correct myself, Billy. I said Chuck Dixon. It's Chuck Grayson, of course. Chuck Dixon's the comic book writer. <laughs> the comic book writer. <laughs> Why the heck did I think of that guy? Anyway, so Chuck Grayson's, uh, they sprawled on the floor. The robot man showed up just in the nick of time. And then Chuck goes on to blame this whole... Well, they almost died, right? And it blew almost yeah. blew up Robot Man's lab. He blames it on the fact that he was distracted by making improvements to the new body that he's designing for Robot Man. And then Joan showed up, and then he neglected to keep his eye on the power levels. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And then Robot Man just says, forget it. (laughs) I'm not going to second-guess the guy who saved my life. (laughs) But he's Mm -hmm. also not going to second-guess the guy who almost killed his girlfriend, but... You know, um, it, it is funny though, Robot Man refers to himself already in the third person, right, Billy? Because when he sees mm-hmm. Joan lying there on the floor, he says, uh, there's Joan Carter. She used to be Bob's intended. And that's him <laughs> referring to himself as Robert Crane, mm-hmm. but he's calling himself Bob. I think he's firmly like, you know, he basically just like Hank just did with the Commander Steel se- uh, segment. He's let go of his old identity and... and basically become a new person right Billy he's he's dead mm. Robert Crane is dead he's he was a he was a different person he is a different person now the same with Hank I think Commander Steel's still struggling with that fact a little but it looks like yeah. Robot Man has completely well well we'll learn later that he hasn't completely um you know come to grips with it but more so than Commander Steel at this point I think because he's been Robot Man mm-hmm. longer than Steel has just a little bit longer so they end up repairing the lab. Robot Man, you know, puts on his um, rubber mask and, and suit as Paul Dennis. <laughs> Straight from the golden age there. His, his um, 
secret identity and then this lawyer shows up saying that Dennis I want to speak to that robot man that you've always got hanging around you we're gonna turn him into scrap in a into a hunk of junk <laughs> so this is straight from Star Spangled Comics right Billy number 15 yeah. from 1942 as it's mentioned by Lynn here uh, in the editor's note uh, this yeah this follows the robot man story arc from the golden age where they did try to mm-hmm. they, they put him on trial for essentially being a threat to humanity because he's not human he's this 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 you know human weapon robot. this this robot yeah. walking around which could yeah. be a threat to humanity and uh, they they're even worried about ai robot man is even worried about that you know because that he would be perceived as that an inhuman threat Mm-hmm. That's an interesting story. Now we'll see more of that in issue seventeen, right, Billy, of All Star mm-hmm. Squadron. That then it's going to be yeah. the trial of Robot Man. That's a great issue in itself. Also a fantastic mm-hmm. Hubert cover. And then Billy, I want you to talk about the next sequence with um, the Shining Knight and Churchill. Now this yeah. is how Churchill, in fact, did return to Great Britain. Um, <clears throat> he he flew back to Great Britain. This time they didn't take a, a, a destroyer. Uh, over to the states like when he arrived <clears throat> they flew back and then of course churchill even piloted the the aircraft part of the way um you know i think it was after they hit bermuda <laughs> you know he piloted it back <laughs> so churchill you know he, he had some piloting skills but here mm-hmm. it's very much sir justin and churchill just talking to each other getting to know each other because after all he's accepted the role as churchill's bodyguard so mm-hmm. Billy, what ends up happening here? It's a it's a it's a good sequence. I like this part. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It starts out with just a quiet scene, like you said, with the two of them talking and then two pilots up there doing their thing. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Sir Justin says, Hold, those bursts growing louder, moment by moment. And that's the next thing you know, it shows uh the Luftwaffe, the bombers have arrived from the French coast for the nightly blitz. And then uh, the little box says, British term for intense aerial bombing of their homeland during World War II from German Blitzkrieg or um, Lightning War. So, you know, the German planes are there to bomb the crap out of them. So Sir Justin jumps on uh, his uh, horse, winged victory, and goes out there and goes crazy and starts using his sword to just, like, take apart the propellers and the planes, you know, the Germans and as he's doing it, God in Himmel, <laughs> there's a, a ger- German pilot doesn't know what the heck they're doing. Really cool splash page then too. That you know you see Sir Justin and now not a sword, but he has a lance, and he's taking out planes left and right. So it's really super cool. Good yeah, he's page. jousting with a Heinkel bomber, and mm-hmm. uh, and then we also learn that Winged Victory is bulletproof as well as you know, um, you know because of Merlin's enchantments. Mm-hmm. And of course, Sir Justin's, uh, you know, immune to danger in this case too because of his mystic armor. And then mm-hmm. uh, it's got this great uh, panel by Billy on, I think it's page nineteen, where we see uh, Sir Justin victorious as the shining knight, you know, and winged victory rearing in midair with all these German bombers just mm-hmm. plummeting to the ground in flames, and yeah. then Ch- the smile appearing on Churchill's face as he witnesses this fantastic mm-hmm. battle that sir justin has emerged victorious from and then we've got another great scene which is um right after that um johnny quick and liberty bell and firebrand arriving at 
the San Francisco um, Army Hospital or the hospital, military hospital, where mm-hmm. these um, Pearl Harbor, uh, the injured from Pearl Harbor have been, you know, um, treated. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's some pretty horrific scenes when they enter into the hospital. Johnny Quick, again, he shows his budding f- uh, power of flight which is not completely under his control yet, but later he will gain mastery over that, right, Billy, where he leaps mm-hmm. up to the second story with a uh, prior brand and L- Liberty Bell in tow. And uh, then Liberty Bell even comments on him, says, uh, you know, you, you believe you can fly, don't you? <laughs> and he says, yeah, well, I'm working on it, lady, because, uh, you know, but he was moving so fast, they didn't even bother but checking into the hospital um, or, you know, dealing with the guard posted outside. But they're shocked to see all these horrific injuries. I mean, you've got guys who are blind, people who have lost limbs. You know, mm-hmm. you see all of this, the horrors of war. And then yeah. they're they're shown into the room where Rod Riley is recuperating, right, Billy? And then Firebrand mm-hmm. is happy, very happy to see him. She shows off her new costume, her powers. Rod basically gives his uh, blessing to... to um, his sister to Danette saying that you're the new firebrand now. And then she even says, yeah, I've even got these powers, you know, which makes me more of a firebrand than you ever were. <laughs> no, she never said that, but it's implied. <laughs> yeah. But no, they're, 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 you can see they've got a good relationship, but then um, she ends up, you know, talking some racist stuff again. She says like, I'm going to burn all these, these yellow, what what does she call them? It's it's horrible, right, Billy? But of course, Roy did this on oh, yeah. purpose to show that you know racism isn't evil, and that yeah. we shouldn't fall into this trap. And he says, uh, she says, these dirty yellow scum. I'm gonna burn them for what they did to you. Mm-hmm. And then he tells her a story, right, Billy? Very important story that mm-hmm. we should all take note of. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you want to talk about this because it's yeah. quite quite heartfelt. Yeah, this is my favorite segment by far. I mean, some of the other ones are, you know, funny and pretty cool and stuff like that, too. But this one, you know, uh, had a really good, you know, a lesson to be learned about it. Because I think that, you know, when you look back through history, like you said, World War Two, especially, but other wars and conflicts and stuff, too. It just you always just have the tendency to think, you know, everybody from that country feels that way, you know, that the government or the military does. And it's just not true. So, you know, what Rod says, you know, he tries to calm her down and says, hey, listen, he said, you know, you know, that's not the way to think. And she's like, what do you mean? And, you know, she's saying, how can you defend the?" And he said, listen, he's like, when I got shot down, you know, um, the zero came back to like kind of finish him off and shoot him again while he was laying face down on the ground dying. But um, a soldier jumped in front and took the, the fire you know, the bullets for him. And she said, uh, I'm sorry, Rod, was he someone you knew? And he said, never saw him before. He was just a soldier at Wheeler Field helping a couple of fellow Americans. And then she said, then I'm not sure what that has to do with. And he said, it has to do a lot with it. And he said, that soldier's name was Ken Hosakawa. He was born in California, but both his parents were born in Japan. And he died giving his life for a country that denied those parents citizenship. So, you know, good, yeah. really good lesson to be learned there. And then Brandy realizes she's wrong. And I mean, Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell has been telling her this all along, ever since mm-hmm. her tirade on the aircraft. But 
You know, yeah. she realizes she's wrong. She's um, it's just been hate driving her. You shouldn't hate the enemy. You should respect them. But I mean, in some cases, it's it's unavoidable, unavoidable, right, Billy, that you would hate them. But you shouldn't yeah. turn that into a, a racist thing. You know, and um, in many cases, it's not really you can't generalize, you know, it's not the people who are the problem. Mm -hmm. It's just the the leaders who are, you know, forcing Mm -hmm. these people into these horrific acts. So she realizes that it's got nothing to do with race. It's got nothing to do with 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 culture or why we're different. It's just got to do with with some evil people forcing good people to do evil. Yeah. Um, And, you know, she she immediately uh, recants her you know newly acquired ideology and she becomes the the firebrand we love again right so Mm -hmm. after that i think she never relapses into this again this was a brief just roy showing using her as an example of what happened to many people many soldiers but also many Mm -hmm. people at home during this time how they suddenly became racist towards uh, asians or to the japanese americans particularly because of what Mm -hmm. Japan's leaders had done, Japan's soldiers. So, yeah, we should never, you know, do this. We should not fall into this trap. And, you know, we're better humans. We can all, uh, you know, understand. We first have to, you know, discover the root causes of any event, right, Billy, before you start hating and Mm -hmm. irrationally hating and blaming just everybody associated with with the event. So, uh, interesting, great a bit of writing there by Roy Thomas. That's why I love this issue. I loved it even yeah. more than the previous one because this one really shows you what the All-Star Squadron is all about. Believe they're heroes through and through, mm-hmm. but not just because they save the world or fight the Nazis. It's because mm-hmm. they, you know, teach the readers, young readers like me at least, um, that, you know, uh, they teach you... A, well, you can't really... You can teach morality, I think, but... Um, you know, you can also teach the wrong morality, of course. But this right. is more showing by example of how we should behave and how we should treat everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we learn this through this issue. And wow, well done, Roy. He did that in many Marvel issues that he wrote and many DC issues as well. Yeah. So great issue because of that, but also because of all the other moments, you know, that we mm-hmm. had. So, Billy, mm-hmm. all in all, this is my favorite of the two that we discussed, but both were excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about the covers. Two mm. absolutely jaw-dropping, incredible covers by Kubert. Which one was mm-hmm. your particular favorite? Well, for me, it's 13, and only because on 12, I don't like how they uh, have that effect from Haster like using his mental powers to blast a Hawkman and, you know, mm, it's just, mm. they made it like a white effect, but it just looks like the cover wasn't finished color being colored. <laughs> yeah. So I don't like that about it. But other than that, I love that cover too. But 13, I think is much better. And 13 is interesting because it has, you know, like some real, uh, like photos in the background, you know, like, uh, like photo collages like yeah. Kirby used to do yeah. in the background. And it's all purple. Which is really cool because if you'd be like, oh, I'm going to make a comic book cover and you're going to make it purple. And I'd be like, mm, I don't know about that, but it looks great. And it works. Yeah, yeah the color scheme. With all the other reds and blues and yellows of all the characters on the front. It's just, to me, 13 is the, the superior issue cover-wise and inside. Yeah, I agree. I love it when Kubert draws them, you know, any um, cover where he draws superheroes or soldiers running at the reader. 
has always looked great <laughs> for me there's that great yeah. you know weird war tales cover which introduces the the first appearance well actually of the creature commandos that Kubert did where mm. the creature commandos break through a a wall and but they're running at the reader but they're also running at the nazis and the nazis are even looking at the reader appealing to the reader <laughs> like help <laughs> here it's something different this is a more celebratory cover you know where they're running right after a victory which which mm -hmm. the, a couple of victories actually a string of victories yeah and we've got churchill returning home so this is them you know the first we could call it almost like season one almost right billy of all-star squadron mm -hmm. done with yeah. because the annual is going to follow the first annual is going to follow this issue and uh, mm -hmm. so the first year of all-star squadron has basically been wrapped up here by roy and the guys so um this is a cover saying yeah the all-star squadron has emerged victorious from their first trials and they're here to stay hopefully uh for a while longer so i like the fact that everybody on this cover is smiling you know they're like yeah um uh, this is a great cover but the first one's mm -hmm. also good um i like it when hawkman's featured you know prominently because he's such a great visual character to have on any cover but haster yeah. also looks sinister but it looks more like a panel taken out of the comic itself um than a cover i would say yeah you know the cover of mm -hmm. issue 12 whereas issue 13 is just a cover's cover <laughs> you know it's like a, a comic book um master class course on how to draw a great feel-good iconic superhero cover mm -hmm. so yeah would, we have to pick cover 13 here so Billy any other notes here about uh, the issues we discussed particularly issue 13 no no I think we covered everything it was pretty okay. good like I said two good issues one that finished up the storyline and one that was kind of a standalone but you know yeah some really good stuff here Roy was really uh, firing on all cylinders here yeah, man, I'm trying to look through my notes here. I see that, um, you know, um, some of the notes I made was ab about the propaganda cartoons during the time. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, a lot of the propaganda cartoons from the States and from, you know, Germany and from Japan, they all focused on the, racist, the racial elements, you know. So um, mm -hmm. that, that's what basically fueled the population too because they everybody was reading newspapers. Everybody was getting their news from these things. And it was... Uh, you were, it was almost impossible to avoid these little cartoons and uh, depicting the, the, the enemy in these horrific animalistic terms uh, yeah. as a less subhuman, you know, um, not worthy of, of, of mercy, all of that kind of thing. So um, yeah. that's always, a, that, that can never end well. You know what I mean, Billy? Because mm -hmm. even after the war is done, that racism will linger. So, mm -hmm. um, you know... Uh, hopefully now we're better but there's still obviously we're not yet there's we've still got a long way to go you know but i'm 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 trying to sometimes think that we we were improving uh so uh we'll see <laughs> but mm -hmm. um other than that what else do i have here um no that's about it oh other oh i i forgot to mention um Roy, you know, he wrote The Invaders before he wrote All-Star Squadron, right, Billy? And there was, as we've mentioned mm -hmm. in a couple of issues in the past, where Roy used historical events uh, in All-Star Squadron, and he did that beforehand in The Invaders, too, to mm -hmm. introduce some, some assassination attempts on world leaders. He did that again. Um, now, as you remember, uh, when Churchill arrived, there was an inv uh, in, in um, the States for the Arcadia Conference on... Um, mm -hmm. uh, via ship uh, 
there was an assassination attempt um, in the, the pages of the invaders as well, similar to the all-star mm-hmm. squadron one he wrote, right? Billy. Now when Churchill yeah. piloted uh, the, the plane back from Bermuda on, on his mm-hmm. way back to, to England, there was in the pages of the invaders, I think it was invaders number four, another assassination attempt this time by you man, <laughs> the <laughs> Nazi equivalent of the submariner who tried to to pull down the plane and have it plummet into the ocean and kill Churchill like that. But then Submariner obviously cleaned his clock <laughs> uh, in Invaders number four. So um, interesting, right, Billy, that Roy would sometimes... He, I mean, this had nothing to do with All-Star Squadron, but if he did somehow introduce another assassination attempt on Churchill on his way back to UK, I would have <laughs> said, come on, Roy, you're just rehashing old plot lines here, man. Because he's already done that once, but um, still, I don't mind. It's it's fine. Uh, mm-hmm. Roy's writing is, is pretty good at this point, so I'm willing to forgive him almost everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so the only bit that I've prepared for Earth Prime Archive this time is in line with what we discussed when we talked about Firebrand and her racist notions, right, Billy? Now, um, mm-hmm. we we got to have a little bit of sympathy for the German population the japanese population under the rule of their fascist governments you know mm-hmm. uh, not the nazi party was based around mussolini's fascist party which gained power in 1922 in italy and then hitler mm-hmm. only came to power in 1932 but the nazi party had already been existing for a while but we have to remember i believe that before the great depression before the the stock market crash of 1929 the nazi party were very much in the minority people were not falling for their racist rhetoric they weren't uh boycotting jewish owned businesses i mean the average german uh, person was not doing that they were not anti-semitic there were there was of course um anti-semitism you know but i mean the majority of the germans were definitely not if you know what i mean believe that was they they were an integrated society they were prospering based off of, you know, American loans that they had, had received before the Great Depression started because um, mm-hmm. uh, they were they were trying to rebuild Germany, you know, with these American yeah. loans that they were receiving after World War One, They needed that. Of course, mm-hmm. they, they were still suffering economically because they had these war reparations to pay back based on the Treaty of Versailles after World War One where it was determined that Germany was the culprit <laughs> responsible for World War One, which was not not actually true. But um, they were the ones that had to deal with the, the you know, um, the end result of World War One. So they, they did have some economic um, problems, but not as much as we would think, because they were, like I say, benefiting from these huge American loans, which they were... Um, uh, implementing very um, smartly into their economy, they were, you know, creating this this bustling economy in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, all the American banks um, uh, faltered in, you know, the wake of the stock market crash of 1929. America recalled the, the, their loans. They wanted them uh, Germany to immediately pay back all the loans. And then the German people... I think for for a matter of uh, two or three years, they suffered almost as badly as the Americans did in the Great Depression because there were short shortages of food. There were these bread lines, you know, every every day for miles and miles 
through through the cities of Germany and people were really suffering. And when that happens, Billy, you know that anybody who comes along that makes wild promises of how to regain, how to how to change our society radically so that we can survive as a German people, these people who are desperate, who are hungry, they're going to vote for that person. And that person, unfortunately, was Adolf Hitler. You know, so he mm-hmm. sees this moment. So it's a fact that it's it's an undisputed fact that if there was no Great Depression, if the stock market crash didn't happen, I should say, in 1929, the Nazi party would not have been able to garner the votes to get, you know, elected as a majority in their, um, you know, German parliament. And they would not have been able to manipulate the, you know, the German president at the time um, to hand over power to Hitler as chancellor. And then Hitler took further steps to ensure even more power. Uh, and then they, they started seizing back prop- territories they had lost, you know, during the Treaty of mm-hmm. Versailles in World War One, And that was the way that Hitler promised that they would restore Germany to greatness and, and feed the hungry and solve all their economic woes. And it, it worked for a while there, right, Billy? Because he was doing everything, uh, well, according to the international courts, illegally by seizing back these, these areas. He was also yeah. treating the Jews abys- abysmally, the Jewish people, because he was seizing all of their businesses. And um, and that was based off of pro- propaganda that he was spouting to the German people. So, you know, yes, a lot of these German people are complicit, but we have to remember a lot of them had friends and family who were Jewish. You can't just break those ties uh, that easily. But, you know, because of the secret police, the Gestapo, mm-hmm. you know, you also had the SS um, you know, they they were investigating everybody who had Jewish sympathies and who had Jewish blood, you know, and um, who was tied to Jewish families. They were investigating everyone. You feared for your life. You kind of had to fall in line with yeah. um, what the Germans were sprouting at the time, the, the laws they were implementing. So nobody could marry Jewish people. You couldn't um, have any friendly relations with Jews. You had to completely ostracize them for, from society on penalty of death. Um, mm-hmm. That was really how it worked, Billy. So, you know, these people, you can't really blame the, the German population for going along with this madman because they elected him to save them from things as basic as starvation and and suffering, mm-hmm. you know. And then he ended up yeah. going this route that they did not intend, but it was too late. It was already a chain reaction set into motion. They tried. There was numerous assassination attempts on Hitler later on. But it, but it came too late. You know what I mean, Billy. That would not have stopped the Nazi, war, the the, you know, uh, Nazi war machine at that time. Even if they did assassinate him, you know, uh, maybe it would have. But you know, he's he's they, he still had some key uh, people in place who was um, his ardent disciples who would have still yeah. followed his wishes even after he died. Still, you know, um, my point being that the German people were definitely misled by Hitler and suddenly they had a fascist government to deal with and they they did not have many options you know uh, to to oppose Hitler almost none so you can't really blame every single one of them for what happened during World War II the Japanese similar I'm not just talking here about the the uh, the Mm -hmm. American born Japanese I'm talking about the Japanese in the mainland of Japan in their their own country they were under military fascist rule by the military mm-hmm. government at that point in time, who had uh, also um, invested heavily in propaganda systems to indoctrinate the youth and in schools. Right. And in, you know, the teachers were all 
uh, obligated to teach students that the Japanese were the saviors of Asia. They that we had a right to do whatever we want in mm-hmm. Asia because we're the only country free from the yoke of um, British imperialism and and European imperialism. So we could basically we were the saviors and we the the rest of the country should welcome us with open arms if they don't they should be called until they see sense <laughs> so you know uh, you had this this um japanese uh intellectual class who were all against it you know but they were quickly weeded out rooted out and uh, imprisoned and killed sometimes by the military government by tojo and and the like so, yeah. Billy, could you really, like, how would we react in a situation like this? Of course, we would resist, we would fight. But if all of your means of resistance is taken away from you slowly and surely over time, it's not just done suddenly in one fell swoop, mm-hmm. you're going to become inured in, in, in to, the, to the system. And it's going to be harder for you to oppose it and resist. Yeah, you're not kidding. It's just, just like I said, it's it's not like everybody who was, you know, living in Japan or living in Germany or living in Italy was, you know, a horrible person and wanted, you know, take over the world and murder people and this and that. That's not how it was, but you know, it's always, that's something you got to remember. But yeah, Roy did a pretty good job in this issue of relaying that. I think I was, you know, when you get to the end of this issue, I think to myself, eh, it's pretty good. He did a good job there. I, I think so too. And as we go through the all-star squadron, we're going to be learning a lot of things from the war and from, you know, uh, Roy himself, that will, you know, as a young, let's say a young reader reading this, they would definitely benefit you in terms of how you see the war and how you see people and um, and how we should react towards, uh, you know, people who are different than than from ourselves. So, Billy, now uh, we've gotten some more feedback and we're, we're going to first probably discuss feedback we should have discussed last issue, but because it contains some spoilers from one of our most ardent listeners, we decided to leave it to this episode. Um, and I'm going to let you read that for us. Um, we've, we've also got some iTunes reviews, but we'll get to that in the next episode because they're very recent. We haven't had mm-hmm. a time to, to go into them yet. So um, thanks for the two iTunes reviews, but we'll get to that in um, our next episode. So, Billy, uh, what about that feedback? Yeah, we got a couple emails here from our buddy Martin Gray, which is always good to hear from him. You know, he's a good guy, and he's really passionate about uh, All-Star Squadron, really loves the the comic and the show so yeah he said uh about uh roy really needing to cut back on some of the foreshadowing and he said about you know in a situation in issue 11 he liked the comment about the mask hawk girl designed and then the day he wears it is the day he's ready to retire and then of course it's the one he wore when the jsa came out of retirement um <laughs> yeah but yeah he said but johnny's prediction that computers are coming two on the nose or on the beak <laughs> so that was really good <laughs> yeah yeah so and then he said uh, he <laughs> he made a, we, now we asked his permission to say this and he said he laughed and said he could, he said go right ahead you have my blessing he said about the whole uh, big trouble in little china routine we were doing for our send off he said uh, he's like I've never seen big trouble little china and couldn't get my head around the rhyme the furthest I got was something for the end May the hand of Starman never lose a grip on his throbbing rod. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then he said, oh brilliant. Car- carry yeah. on all stars, so forget it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the carry on bit's going to come back later when Martin, you know, uh, wraps up his email. But yeah, this is pretty brilliant. Yeah. So Mar- Martin, I really wanted to use that, but I would have had to get 
pretty pretty uh, raunchy myself when I had to write the you know the the opening segment to that send off. So I thought I just yours yours is enough because it's so good and you know that's all we need. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the issue ten, I believe, that Martin was talking about. Yeah, he also said too about um, how the one uh, caption Roy says another moment an airman Ted Knight would doubtlessly recognize one who shares his unique perspective on human flight. And, you know, he goes on to say, of course, how it, you know, it's annoying to hear how many people say very unique and almost unique. Um, and sharing like, you know, a like unique perspective. Yeah. That's... <laughs> yeah. Like I said, it's a bit of a, a paradox there because you can't have a unique perspective and then share it with somebody else. Cause then it's not unique anymore. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. So yeah. Roy Thomas should have known better. So good, good point there, Martin. <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Martin, he's a writer. Uh, that's that's what he does for By a living. Trade. He's a yeah. journalist. So, you know, he, he knows what he's talking about. So, uh, mm -hmm. he, yeah, good call there, Martin. Yeah, and then he talked a little bit about um, Ben Oda as well. You know, how there was a situation in uh, some of the dialogue. And he said, when Johnny wakes up and hears the Jerry's talk about saboteurs in German, their speech is suddenly in parentheses and italics where previously they hadn't been the case and he said about maybe that was he didn't know if that was a roy thing or a ben oda thing but you know he went on to say about how uh about he died not long after the the issue of all-star squadron appeared you know and he said he was a japanese american and served as a paratrooper during the war you know so that was a really cool factoid there he because i did not know that and yeah, Martin also suggested that we do a character profile or a comic book creator profile on Ben Oda, which we're definitely going to do, Martin, possibly uh, soon. I just um, I want to prepare something uh, really, really fitting for for Ben, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't done it for this episode. I apologize, but yeah, that that's a great suggestion. We have to do that. Sometimes do a bit of a character, you know, or a. a, a artist profile or a writer a comic book creator profile on one of these guys that was involved that's a mm -hmm. fantastic uh notion that we should actually get to right billy mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah we're gonna do that for sure absolutely and then uh, martin also sent us two great dc profiles uh done for you know on ben oda um, in the 70s uh by you know bob rosakis gave him a profile in the daily planet and then um mm -hmm. andy halfer uh, in a meanwhile page, you know, um, uh, did a Ben Oda remembered, um, mm -hmm. you know, section. So that was pretty great. So we're going <laughs> to utilize that when we finally get to talking about Ben. And don't, I shouldn't forget the pick that Martin sent along, right? With with Kirby, Joe oh, Simon, yeah. Bill Drought, Marvin Stein, and Ben Oda pictured, right? In this classic pick from, mm -hmm. from I, I think it's, it's from, yeah, it's pro probably from the 1940s. Or, oh, yeah. or early 1950s even. No, it Maybe must be late 1940s, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> some, this time Martin outdid himself with the comments. This is really great comments, right? But so much to unpack, so much to talk about. Yeah, he, he did send that second email even a little more recent. And he just said about, you know, thanks for the great discussion on uh, Ask 10 and 11. Um, and then he also said about still being, you know, a crime basically that these stories aren't collected in color. And he said, I may become so bitter that I turn to crime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Martin also gave us permission to call him Mart, which is, uh, mm -hmm. which, which shows you what a great guy Martin is. I'm still going to keep calling him Martin because I see him more like, you know, he's um, in, in 
well, yeah, he's like I, I should be. I, I could call him Sir Martin or you know um, mm-hmm. Doctor Gray if I wanted to because he's he's that good at you know uh, you know with with his um, uh, level of esteem in the podcasting realm I should say and the the, the blogs blogosphere. He's, you know, one of the guys you can always uh, depend on to always get give accurate information and always uh, mm-hmm. make for a riveting read on his blog. So, you mm-hmm. know, he's, he's one of the greats that we interact with, at least, Billy, in terms of people with comic book know-how. So I'm yeah, just going to keep yeah. calling him Martin out of respect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but to me, he, he, like I said, yeah, respect thing. He is, he is definitely Martin. You got to use the full name there. <laughs> oh, definitely. And then we got hey, a, a stalwart listener of ours on Into the Weird transitioned over to our ass cast to the wolf cast mm-hmm. i should say who is that billy oh that's our buddy professor allen yeah um, yeah he's a good dude man um so i always look forward to uh hearing his shows and then uh interacting with him on twitter and stuff like that but yeah he, he sent us an email and he said uh that after listening to the first episode and loving it, somehow the show deleted itself from my phone. He said, I can't prove it, but I blame Per Degaton. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he uh, did uh, catch up uh, with the show and with the comics. So he's completely caught up. And he said, fun and entertaining show and keep up the good work. And uh, we thank him for that. So thanks a lot, Professor Allen. Yeah, thanks for that, um, Professor Allen. Yeah, and listen to you know Allen's shows. You and I, Billy, we, we're regular subscribers to Professor Allen's shows. You know, the Short Box Showcase uh, is mm-hmm. one of my favorites. But you also um, send in, I, I frequently hear some of your uh, emails that you send uh, mm-hmm. the prof being read on most of his shows, yep. right? So, yeah. But, yeah, I should interact more, but you know, um, uh, we I can't do without Professor Allen's shows. They're just too entertaining. I, I can't let them go. So I try to listen to sometimes I fall behind, but um, I always mm-hmm. it's always at the top of my, you know, to listen to impile if there is such a thing in the digital mm-hmm. realm. <laughs> so great feedback there from some of yeah. our listeners. We'll get to the uh, iTunes reviews uh, soon, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And give them yep. their appropriate shout-outs, Billy. But uh, I think that's it for this episode. Um, where can people find us online if they want to to send some feedback? Yeah, so any feedback can be sent to, you know, we have email for, just for the show, a world on fire podcast at gmail.com. Or people can reach out to you on Twitter um, at Dark Longbox. Or they can reach out to me on Twitter. Um, I have, a, you know, an account just for the show. Um, it's at all squadron that's right yeah and um, check out our other shows we've got a Marvel Bronze Age comic book podcast show Into the Weird and Billy Mm -hmm. um, you have Magazines and Monsters which focuses on everything from comic books to horror movies to science fiction it's basically all Mm -hmm. across the board which is how I like some of my shows you know I don't, but I also like shows that are topic specific so you know it's it's (laughs) it's um you know, unfair of me to say that I only like shows that deal with a broad range of stuff. But Magazines and Monsters serves that function for me. And yeah, I'm finally getting things rolling there with that one, getting a lot of episodes out, you know, at least a couple every month. And yeah. getting on a good uh, good schedule there. So, yeah, look for more stuff in the future from there, especially you and I. We're going to talk about another movie soon. And then there's you know, a Marvel Treasury edition I'm going to talk about soon. And, oh, yeah, crazy uh Brave and the Bold story. So, yeah, get ready. <laughs> yeah, great stuff on the horizon there. So, we've got a bit of a special send-off this time around, Billy. Not done by you or me, 
This is a send-off um, from the annals of history. And uh, we're going to we'll use this this week. And we might use it uh, in future weeks as well because it's so iconic and so appropriate. So um, I'm going to let the listeners listen to that as you and I say goodbye for now. But we'll be back with another AskCast, <laughs> another World on Fire <laughs> Wolfcast uh, in two weeks' time. So stay tuned, listeners, and uh, keep subscribing. And we'll be here and we'll keep podcasting. So I'm going to leave you with uh, the words of one Winnie Winston Churchill to take us into the skies here as we head back to England, back to San Francisco, back to our dreary lives, you and me, Billy, (laughs) until the next (laughs) podcast. So take it easy, listeners. Take care, everybody. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. <laughs>